Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Who's Talking. She runs the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and its 13,000 workers. The CDC's mission to protect the public health. And she took charge at the height of the COVID pandemic. I worked a lot on this question, Alex. I deny it unto Are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes. Okay. Of course I will. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, welcome. It's so great to talk to you again. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you. So let's start with the new COVID vaccine, which protects not only against the original strain, but also against the Omicron variants, which cause most of the cases in the country uh, now. Uh, How does the rate at which people are getting this new vaccine compare to the rate at which they were getting the original shots and the boosters? Well, first, let's just reflect of how important this moment is, that we have a new vaccine that actually matches the variants that we have circulating right now. So that's new and novel. And we're really excited that we have this bivalent vaccine right now. The reason it's important to get right now is because it expands your immunity. It expands, it increases duration of protection. And what we're seeing is an increase in the number of people who are getting it. We're just starting to release data on the number of people who are getting it. It's over 7 million. And we've seen an increase in the pace of those vaccines going into arms. So are you reasonably satisfied with the pace? I mean, I know you'd always like it to I be I would always more, like more. But I mean, are you reasonably satisfied or are you concerned that people that there may be some vaccine fatigue, people may feel like the pandemic's over and they're not responding as as quickly as they should to this new right vaccine and protection. Yeah, well, I think both can be true. I'm enthusiastic about what we're seeing so far, but I'm also anticipating as we go into the fall, as we go into respiratory virus season, we really do want to get that updated booster into arms as well as get people the flu vaccine. So um, really, we're not going to we're not going to slow down in our efforts. We really want to increase um, vaccine uh, uptake, both for COVID vaccines as well as influenza vaccines. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. When should you get the new vaccine? Because I've heard some people say, you know, I think I'm going to wait for a bit and then get it when I can. So I'll be protected against a possible spike in the virus as the weather gets colder. How do you feel about people timing when they get the vaccine? You know, right now, I think it's just important to roll up your sleeve and get the vaccine. For those who have been had a COVID infection in the last three months or so, we would say, okay, it's, you know, wait until you're three months out of your last protection to get the most or your last infection so you can get the most out of the vaccine. But really, you know, we're coming into October respiratory viral season. We don't know exactly when a surge may hit and we want to be prepared. We know once you get the vaccine, it takes a couple of weeks for that immunity to kick in. So I think now is really the time to go ahead and get it. You know, there's talk about you're going to end up getting an annual COVID shot the way you get an annual flu shot. The question I have is, does 
the COVID shot protect you for a year? You know, I think we are acquiring those data right now. We're going to see how, you know, first of all, we don't know how the cycle of new variants will come in. So, you know, we need that protection when we have a surge of cases. Um, And then it's also the case that we really do want to see how well and how long this new bivalent vaccine protects against infection. So more to come on that. We are actively looking at how well these vaccines work. We've done so throughout the COVID um, uh, primary series and booster series, and we will do that with the bivalent series as well. You know, you raised raised a good point. Uh, This protects against the original uh, strain. It protects against the the current strains, the Omicron strains. What's the likelihood we're going to get another big variant like we got Omicron and suddenly this won't protect as well against whatever is really out there. So one of the reasons for this bivalent boost is that laboratory data suggests that not only does it protect against the original strain and the B5 strain that we have now, but it actually offers broader protection against anticipated variants as well. So certainly we never know whether there'll be a variant that would come that we don't anticipate, but what we see with this bivalent boost and why it's so important to get right now is that we really do see a much broader spectrum of protection that you could potentially get from in our laboratory data. You know, I think people have a sense of the side effects from getting the vaccine. Some people had it more seriously, some people less seriously. But, you know, it, in almost all cases, it's, it's livable and maybe you feel bad for a day. What are you hearing so far? What's your data about the side effects from this new vaccine? You know, it's a very similar vaccine. It's almost identical, except for a tiny little cassette tra- uh, change in the um, mRNA sequence itself. We're not anticipating any differences in those side effects, and we haven't seen any to date. So I hear talk that, you know, get the, the, the vaccine and get the flu shot at the same time. I got to say, I'm a little concerned about that because I feel... I get a little uh, side effect from one, I get a little side effect from both. Do I really want to have both at the same time? You know, we know that it's safe to do so. We have data from over 450,000 people who last um, last season got both at the same time. We know that it's safe to do so. And when you do so, you actually don't sacrifice anything in terms of how well they work either. Um, and what we're encouraging people to do is, you know, if we have you and, and you're getting one, you know, save yourself a trip from getting the other. On the other hand, there are some people who say like, you know, with one, I could probably work the next day. With two, I'm not sure I can. So I'm going to make the two trips. So really up to you. But what we really want to say is it's safe to do so. And if you're inclined to do so, you're having a light day the next day, perfectly safe to do so. And what about this talk, these projections, and that maybe in part because we had such small, easy flu seasons because everybody was masked up, that we're going to get a bad flu season this winter? Yeah, I think there are certain parameters at play here. One is that we've had a light flu season the last couple of seasons. That means our population immunity against flu is down. We also have seen decreased numbers of flu vaccine uptake. So again, our population immunity is down. And when that happens, season over season over season, we are at risk of um, of a hard flu season to come. Um, We've also seen in other countries that get flu before us that they have had early and difficult flu seasons. So again, another reason to be prepared and to protect yourself as much as we can ahead of time. All right, let me change subjects. Now that I've asked you all the questions, (laughs) you know, I figure I got a doctor here, I'm gonna take advantage of it. Um, I don't have to tell you that President Biden caused quite a stir recently when he said this. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If it's over, 
Why is it that the Biden administration still has not one but two COVID public health emergencies in effect? You know, here is what I think the president was trying to reflect upon. Um, when I, and I think our memory has been short here, but you know, when we look back at some of the darkest times of the pandemic, um, everyone was home. We were, I was personally wiping down our groceries. My kids were not in school. Um, the economy was pretty well shut down. Uh, and we were, people were dying at 3,000 a day. Right. Um, we're not in that kind of place anymore. And I think that is really optimistic good news. We still, though, have 350 deaths a day. And in my mind, that is still too many. We still have work to do to protect ourselves. We still have a lot of concern about a respiratory viral season and potentially a COVID season ahead of us. And so we have a lot of work to do to get those updated shots into arms to make sure Americans are protecting themselves for what potentially could come. No, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's over and we should declare victory and you shouldn't still get the vaccines, but I mean, clearly we are in a better shape shape than we were. I mean, you're quite right, and that's good news. But given what the president was reflecting, do we still need to have these public health emergencies? And, and let me point out something, because part of that, a cynic would say, is that it has allows the Biden administration to give out $16 billion a month in welfare benefits. And, and let me put up some of what the benefits are that, that come from the public health emergencies. More generous food stamps, a restriction on state work requirements. More people can stay on Medicaid. In addition, billions in student debt have been canceled. I guess the question is, does the situation in terms of COVID, in terms of the, you know, the public health situation, justify these emergencies, or is this just a way for the administration to hand out more federal goodies? You know, what I think that we need to understand is the public health emergency, and certainly this is a decision that lies with the secretary, but the public health emergency does unlock important things for us. It unlocks our ability to see data at the CDC, for example, it unlocks a, a capacity for um, emergency use authorizations of new tests that might be available. So there are certain things that the public health emergency does unlock. We do need a pathway towards commercialization of the therapeutics and vaccines that um, have gotten us out of this pandemic um, or towards the end of this pandemic. But and, and all of those are at play and in conversation, as as I think the secretary is thinking about when is secretary of health and human, human services. services. Thank you. But, secretary OK, Bizarre. but I mean, all of that makes sense. But does it justify 16 billion dollars in welfare benefits every month? Right. So I think that the important question here is, are the things that uh, that it unlocks so necessary in this moment that it, and because it unlocks a lot of things and many of the things we need to get a pathway to commercialization of these products. You're, you're so, kind of ducking, though, the question yeah. about the benefits. Um, you know, I don't mean to. I think that it unlocks a lot of things that have been really important as we've gotten out of it. And so, you know, there's a lot in the basket of what the public health emergency does. And the question is, can we tease apart the things that we really need in this moment versus those other things? Where are we on monkeypox? Is it now under control? 
So monkeypox, we have about 25, over 25,000 cases in this country. Um, this has been an extraordinary effort, and our rate of rises of new cases is coming down dramatically. Um, and so we, I'm encouraged by that news, and yet we still have to be vigilant. We've gotten over 800,000 vaccines, Genios vaccines, into arms, and um, I think we've gotten, we're getting them into the arms that need them the most. We just recently um, released data that demonstrate early on cautious optimism that we believe these vaccines are working in the way that they should be working, that um, those who have been vaccinated have about a 14-fold decrease in the number of cases compared to those who are unvaccinated. So um, still a lot of work to do, a lot of kudos to community engagement that has been really incredible partners for us in public health um, as we've worked to get this monkeypox outbreak under control. This has felt more like a, one of our traditional interviews so far. Now I want to turn it more into a conversation and get more personal. You started your, in medicine in the 90s, just at the height of HIV AIDS. And I wonder on a personal level, as well as a professional level, how that shaped your career, that experience and your focus on infectious disease. I was instrumental. I mean, um, I remember being a first year med student in the classroom when the news broke that Magic Johnson had HIV. Um, we literally walked into into the classroom and that and everybody was pouring over the newspaper on the news. Um, it was around the time Arthur Ashe um, was diagnosed with AIDS. Um, my, I, I was an intern in inner city Baltimore in 1995, and and what that that year was so important in the world of HIV and AIDS. Um, in June, July of that year, when I was a starting house officer, there was no treatment. Um, and in December was the approval of the third drug in the cocktail. And so literally, we were admitting six, seven people a night, half of whom were dying of AIDS. Um, and so by, by the you know, end of that year, when I was a house officer, um, we, we could tell people there was hope. We could tell people that you might not die. You might have to take 14 pills three times a day, but you might not die of this disease. And that was... Um, I, I just kind of needed to know how this was all going to go. What, what, what did this mean for HIV? What did this mean for, for an epidemic in this country and truly around the world? And so it is the reason I'm an HIV doc and an infectious disease doc. I mean, that was literally the point at which you decided, I want to devote the rest of my professional career to exactly this this problem, helping right. people with infectious disease. And yeah, the, it was that year. It was, and, and in fact, what's interesting about it is it wasn't just the medicine of that year and how you could help people, but by being an intern and a house officer, you hear their stories. You hear, um, you hear their challenges. You hear about the stigma associated with the infection. Um, you hear about the, the challenges that got them to potentially um, not have um, access to care um, or have how they became homeless in this, you know, in an outbreak. Um, and it is those stories that are really moving. So it really was so much about treating the infection, but also treating the person, the person behind the infection. Well, I, I, I want us to switch from that to where you are right now, though, because on this personal level, you've, not surprisingly, come under some criticism for your handling of COVID, so is everybody else. <laughs> uh, but you don't come from the world of politics. You come from the world of patient care and the world of research. So getting into this world and taking the political knocks, has that been hard for you? 
Um, you know, I knew when I took this position I was going to get those. What's been interesting is I literally was kind of plucked from the bedside. Um, I, I was, you know, running a division of infectious diseases and had been wearing a stethoscope a couple months prior to my coming into the administration. And when you take care of a patient, they sort of assume that you are there, you are working for their good health. Um, you would un wouldn't be there otherwise. And so when I took that this position, that I felt like, okay, I've gone from a single person being my patient to the country being my patient. Um, that sort of assumption of goodwill and good intention is not necessarily carried. Um, and it became a lot of political knocks. So that was took some getting used to. Bottom line is my job is to take care of and protect the health of America and people around the world. Um, I take that very seriously. And I don't think our viruses care um, which way you vote. But honestly, I understand they don't care, but honestly, do you care? Does it hurt your feelings when people, usually of the other party uh, than the president, uh, ascribe, don't ascribe good faith to your efforts? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would prefer they, <laughs> they saw good faith in my efforts, certainly. Um, but it's also the case that uh, uh, there's a lot of noise out there, and it's very hard for me to do my job if I listen to all of the knocks, um, because what I really need to do is focus on the good health of this country and making really important um, decisions in this time. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, of course it hurts, um, but you, you got to tune it out. Um, you have to listen to it because you have to understand what people are saying. Um, so I try and get kind of a healthy balance of understanding what people are saying and where people are where people have challenges with where I'm coming down, um, but also really putting my head down and trying to just do the right thing. Well, I'm going to give you an opportunity now to listen to some of the criticism. <laughs> oh, I can't <laughs> Here wait. You go. So, so one of the criticisms is that you and a lot of the CDC workforce, even at this point, are still working remotely. Here is Senator Richard Burr. Rochelle, we've reached out many times, and the only thing I hear, day-to-day-to-day-to-money, money, money, money. Listen, take it hard what the doctor said to you. When 78% of the employees aren't coming in the office, you don't get much sympathy from us. So why isn't more of the staff and you back in the office full time? You know, um, I, here are a couple of comments that I would say about that. Um, first of all, this is an agency of about 13,000 people who worked through a pandemic not necessarily being in the office. It wasn't safe to be in the office. The people who needed to be there, the laboratory people who needed to be there, they were there and they were there safe. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about now. Right, I understand. It's also the case that I think all of America and truly all of the world is trying to understand with understand how much we need to, should be in the office, giving people the flexibility um, to do the work that they can do while they're working remotely. There are a lot of benefits of working remotely. We have seen that. There's a lot of benefits in terms of people, you know, we are an Atlanta-based agency. Um, we've benefited from a workforce that is not necessarily all in Atlanta um, because we've had expertise across the country. We also are a deployed agency. So we have, you know, 60 countries around the world. World. We have deployed hundreds of people throughout this pandemic. We work wherever it is that we are needed. And so, um, 
yes, we are, you know, following government regulations, federal regulations as to who should be at work and when they should be at work. And those are federal regulations, government regulations. Um, but we're also with the rest of the country trying to decide what is the appropriate balance. Do, so th do you think it's safe to be back in the office now? I think it's safe to be back in the office now. I think it's safe to be back in the office now. And, and are, what percentage of the time? I mean, I understand there's a lot of time when you're out. I... But, but when you're working in, the off, in an office, are you in the office of the CDC in Atlanta? Yes. Or are you yes, some yes, yes. remote? I mean, I'm, I've been all over the place on the road um, and visiting our country offices and visiting our site offices in Colorado, visiting tribal nations in New Mexico. I've been in D.C. a lot, but I'm in Atlanta too. You have also been criticized for sending mixed messages, and I just want to give you two examples for you to respond to. In the spring of 2021, you said that vaccinated people need to wear masks, then two days later that they don't, then two months later you reverse that again saying they can still transmit the virus. Also, last December you said people with the virus should isolate for five days instead of ten, and even Dr. Fauci one of your colleagues, broke with you saying they should get a negative test before ending isolation. I'm less interested in the specifics of those and more in the general question of, do you think that you've had a learning curve in terms of, of, of giving public guidance? Have you, do you think, been a victim of some culture shock in terms of this job versus other jobs? Certainly, I've had a learning curve. Um, yeah, I came into a new government job running an agency of 13,000, and there has been a learning curve. But I also think that, um, and, and so some of that would have been, I might have said in many of those comments, for now. Um, because the science has evolved and the science has changed. And oh, by the way, so has the virus. <laughs> so we've learned more about how our vaccines work. We've learned more about how they potentially in, uh, protect against infection, how they protect against severe infection, how they might wane. We've also had a change in the virus. What was true about being able to take your masks off for a Delta, for an alpha variant was not true for a Delta variant. So it was the, both the virus and the science evolved such that our recommendations had to evolve. And in, in truth, I've spent a lot of time thinking about sort of those early months and those early recommendations. And what I think I've learned is to say for now, because this is a very rapidly moving uh, uh, science. In July of last year, uh, Florida Governor DeSantis said that he thought that Florida had done better than much of the rest of the country because he had, to a large degree, ignored the federal guidance coming from Washington. Here he is. I think it's very important that we say unequivocally no to lockdowns, no to school closures, no to restrictions, and no mandates. Given what we have learned since about the effects of school lockdowns, the social harm that's done by kids being isolated, uh, the, the weeks or months of education that they've lost, that they've been set back, do you think that you should have pushed to open schools sooner? Um, so I, the, I think the first guidance I released in February of 2021 was our school guidance. Um, and I have always said we need to get 
kids back to school. Schools have to be the last place to close and the first place to open. I was actually criticized for saying, I think we need to get our schools open before every teacher is vaccinated um, because this is so critically important. I also think we need to understand that some of the decisions that were made were made in the absence of data. Um, we have seen really bad respiratory viruses that, that are really detrimental to our children. And so early on, I think some of the decisions about closing schools in the absence of any data about how this was going to go was necessary. Um, but that said, you know, we needed our kids back in school, and that was the first thing that we started working on as soon as I came in in January of 2021. Do, do, not just schools, but the whole economy and stuff. It, it, and, and I understand hindsight is twenty twenty. But, you know, we did see some states like Florida, like Texas, that opened up a lot sooner than the rest of the country did. And I'm not just talking about schools and seemed to do OK. And the economy seemed to be stronger and kids didn't seem to get much sicker. Did we did the did the administration misplay the whole question of lockdowns? Again, understanding that hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, and also understanding that some of these, this bridged administrations, the issues of lockdowns bridged administrations. What I can tell you is one of the things that's most important, at least in my mind, um, is how are our hospitals functioning? And I've always looked at that as the barometer. Um, when, when I was entering my hospital before I came into the administration, we had a morgue truck outside. We had 14 ICUs, conference rooms were being turned into ICUs. We can, and people were deferring their routine care. That can't be. So we need to be, when our hospitals are in that, that kind of state, and that's actually among the reasons why when we released our new CDC metrics, our COVID-19 community metrics level metrics, we said we need to look at our hospitals as the barometer here. It can't just be about cases. It, it has to be how many people are coming into the hospital, are our hospitals overwhelmed? How troubled are you that so often, and this was certainly true of AIDS, and it's been true now of COVID, that our politics gets mixed up with public health? Oh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> um, you know, as you try and do the work to deliver prevention, good health measures to people, um, it is just frustrating that the politics is is in the mix because especially I mean um, we can we can spend a lot of time talking about um, promoting vaccination um, prevention measures things like that I believe as you try and get vaccine hesitant people to think about vaccines what you need to do is listen because many people have many reasons why they have questions about that vaccines and you need to be able to answer those questions but as politics get in, gets in the mix um, it just feels like that's not where health should be. I take care of people and have taken care of people regardless of how they vote. This is not the first time I have sp spoken, sat down with you. I interviewed you a number of times when I was at Fox. And one time off camera, I asked you, why are you laughing? Because <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> I asked you if you like Seinfeld. <laughs> Do you want to explain why I asked you that? Um, yes, because there is an episode about a porn star named Rochelle Rochelle. Well, it was a porn movie. <laughs> or a but... porn movie named Rochelle. I'm much more comfortable with you explaining this than me. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> that is why you asked. I, I it was, again, I was a first-year medical student, and I was a Seinfeld fan, but I did not um, see the episode that played that night. And uh, You told me that you came into class the I, next day. <laughs> I came into class the next day, having not seen the episode, but many other people did. And a whole bunch of people just chanted, Rochelle, Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> 
So did you see the episode? Um, I have. <laughs> okay. No, of course, we should need to point out Rochelle Rochelle is a, a figment of the imagination of Larry David and uh, Jerry Seinfeld, and there is no movie Rochelle Rochelle. That, yes, thank you for noting that. <laughs> and I was not involved. <laughs> yes, good. You were nowhere near that. Exactly. Final question. Uh, the midterms, two years in, is a time when you see turnover inside administrations. People leave after the midterms. Have you given any thought to leaving the CDC sometime after November, or do you plan to stay on? My work's not done. And, uh, you know, I just, just a couple months ago, launched a, a review of the CDC and talked about what we need to do in this next chapter. We've been dealing with a lot of outbreaks over the last two years, and I feel like I have um, more job to do while I'm there. Dr. Polensky, thank you. Thank this you is so a much. pleasure. Uh, a lot of good medical advice, and I think we got to learn more about you. Uh, but we're not done yet. Listen to this. Shortly after starting her job at the CDC, Dr. Walensky got a rare opportunity, throwing out the first pitch at a game for her beloved Boston Red Sox. One reason she... I'm not sure that, that form is so great, Doctor. One reason she's a fan, but the celebration was, is because the Red Sox support the Jimmy Fund which benefits the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard, where her husband is a pediatric oncologist. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.